0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com okay please settle down good evening namaste to all of you tonight finally we are going to go through the final part of the Gyaranda Samhita we had uh, 19 satsangs consecrated so a long series consecrated to this dear fascinating fundamental yoga text and tonight this marathon of analyzing of explaining a great yoga text is reaching to an end we are going to see the final chapter which is relatively short the previous one number six it had 23 shlokas this one number seven also has 23 shlokas just 23 verses and in this 23 shlokas, Gyaranda is explaining to his disciple Chanda Kapali his opinion about the state of samadhi. Gyaranda has a complete system where he starts with kriyas, he starts with asanas, he starts with mudras, <coughs> he goes through pranayamas, pratyahara exercises, meditation, and finally, inevitably, for a complete yogi like Geranda, for a great master, inevitably he reaches to the state of Samadhi. And today we are going to see what Geranda has to say about Samadhi in his lineage, in his system, in his opinion. The lesson number seven, which is the chapter number seven, but which is a relatively short chapter, as I said, is called Samadhi Yoga, the yoga of Samadhi, the yoga about Samadhi. And here is what Giranda says. The the text goes saying, Giranda said, first shloka, Samadhi is the supreme level of yoga. It is attained by great merit, by the grace of the guru, obtained by intense devotion him. In the Indian tradition they realize that to reach the state of samadhi is transcending from a finite level of existence towards an infinite level of existence and this transcending is not a linear process. You cannot say that if you did 5,672 hours of meditation you earned your right to samadhi. Because there is nothing which can earn your right to something which is eternal and infinite. In Christianity, the spiritual realization is sometimes called by the name eternal life. How many hours of meditation do you have to do to get eternal life or prayer? or? There is not an answer to this question because eternal life, the word eternal, involves something which shall never end therefore which is infinite and if it's infinite there is no amount of finite work which can buy something infinite and thus it's well known in spirituality that the spiritual realization is a result of grace and garanda in his view of the world garanda says samadhi the supreme level of yoga is obtained by great merit like you must have done something which has pleased shiva and then shiva for a mysterious reason said poke there you are you have reached samadhi today while you're doing yoga or tomorrow while you're listening to some music or the day after tomorrow where you're doing some sexual tantric practice or the day after the day after tomorrow while you're doing some kundalini mudras or the day after that while you're cooking your oats in the kitchen we don't know when or how but if it when it happens one of the reasons is that you have gained some merit we don't know how to measure that merit we don't know when enough is enough but sometimes it has been noticed that by great merit Jesus gives us a little hint about this because Jesus obviously notices that he comes in a bad time. The Jewish mysticism was quite perverted and the Jewish priests were manipuristic jerks who were allied with the the Jewish king of the time and who were subservient to the Romans. So it was a hierarchy of priests and other social institutions, which were all of them more interested in their money, power, position, influence, as it happens today very often in religion as well. And those people, therefore, they were not clean. So Jesus was not pleased with the Jewish religion. He couldn't have been pleased with the Greek because the Greeks had a great influence in the Middle East. And he couldn't have been pleased with the Roman spirituality because both the Greek and the Roman spirituality were very decadent and very ugly. If you are going to analyze a little bit the spirituality of those days so-called, you are going to find it intolerably imperfect, like really bad. So Jesus was not satisfied with anything happening around. And of course, he considered himself to be the salt of the earth the one who will bring a new covenant with God and a new regeneration of spirituality for uh, another 2,000 years or whatever it will take. And thus, Jesus himself says at some point when he talks to his disciples, he says, pray to God to send workers for the field because there is a lot of crop and workers are needed. Basically, Jesus says, Now, the earth could use approximately 20-30 Buddhas. 20-30 enlightened beings are necessary. As far as I can see, the world is so deteriorated. The world is down big time. So we don't need just one person, especially in a century where there was no television, no media, no communication, no fast ways of transport. Everybody was allotted to a certain geographical area. One person could not do more than spread the message in a limited geographical area. So Jesus says, workers are needed, like the crops are ready. People are ripe. The world is ripe for a new religion. The world is ripe for aspiration, devotion, surrender, spirituality. But who will be the people who will take it to the world? We could say in the same trend, the world needs good yoga teachers. Because 98% of what is taught out there, it's not yoga. It's almost crap. So the question is, where are the real yoga teachers to go in New York and Paris and London and put their foot down and they say, this thing which is being taught here is a mockery of yoga. Here are some yoga courses where I can show you how real yoga used to be. How yoga originally was taught. So Jesus says, pray to God to give workers. Like Jesus says, pray to God to enlighten as many of my apostles and disciples as possible. So that these apostles and disciples should go in the world and spread the good word and produce a spiritual revolution now in this century, now at this time. Even Jesus, he doesn't say, I'm going to enlighten you because I've got a project and I'm the project manager of the first century enlightenment. Jesus says, pray to God to send workers. Jesus is humble. Jesus says, if I'm just a schizophrenic maniac and I'm just fancying all this, the answer of God will be this, the finger. Like God will not enlighten anybody and all this is just the raving dream of me, Jesus, who thinks that I am the salt of the earth and I'm bringing something. But if you pray to God and God gives, suddenly, imagine what it is. Swami Vivekananda said, Give me a hundred enlightened beings and I can change the existential conditions in any country of this world and perhaps on the whole world. Well, God did not give a hundred enlightened disciples to to Swami Vivekananda of India. As soon as Swami Vivekananda of India died, There was not much else happening. There were the original enlightened disciples of Ramakrishna, who were his brothers, his guru brothers. And they were about 12 people as well. But disciples of Vivekananda himself, known there is none. So Vivekananda kept claiming, if God gives me a hundred, I'll change the world. But God didn't which means God thought that the world should be going in Kali Yuga, and it was not the time. Vivekananda was an idealistic dreamer who said, if I would have a hundred enlightened, but if remained an if. It didn't happen. Maybe he was right. If he would have gotten a hundred, he would have produced a revolution. Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, and a few others who came after them, Ramana Maharishi, Yogananda Paramahamsa, they did produce a mini revolution in the spirituality of India. But not a hundred enlightened beings. Even Jesus did not produce directly a hundred enlightened beings. 50, 49 days, fifty days after the death of Jesus, after he passed away, There is celebrated in Christianity, 50 days after Easter, therefore, there is celebrated in Christianity the famous day of the Pentecost, which means the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, and that's not an accidental number, because 50 days reflects the fundamental Indian, yogic, and Tibetan number, 49. Seven times seven plus one. There are 50 50 letters in the Sanskrit alphabet. 49 and 50 are not at all accidental, random numbers. So at 49 plus 1 days after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection more precisely, there comes the Pentecost, the day of the descent of the Holy Spirit, where the apostles were gathered and suddenly they freaked out and they became enlightened, all 12 of them. And that was by merit it's simply because for an unknown reason god simply said now the divine MacDonald is hiring and i need approximately 12. and they got 12 there were 12 positions suddenly put out on the table the divine institution needed not a hundred not one Approximately 12. And those 12 actually did the job. They did a fantastic job. And thus, this is what Geranda says here. It can be acquired by merit, which we don't fully understand. Like suddenly the divine consciousness says, the Indian yoga is going to the dogs. I need somebody strong down there who will restore Hindu yoga to its pristine purity. And that somebody became Ramakrishna. Like Ramakrishna is a man of destiny, is a man of history. He sent the, the cosmic consciousness made so, so that the right person was born at the right time. And even if Ramakrishna didn't have exactly gurus clearly, and it was a bit fuzzy, somehow things fitted And then Ramakrishna reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He was about to die when he reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi. But the cosmic consciousness didn't allow that to happen as well. And eventually Ramakrishna became a great master. He became the reformer of Hinduism. He had 12 disciples out of which the foremost was Swami Vivekananda of India. And this is how that story happened. This is merit. It means somebody deserves to be there. It's exactly like you would say, I want to give 10 Nobel Prizes in physics. Let everybody submit applications. And you are going to have 150 applications from the most eminent physicists in the world today. And then you are going to choose the first 10 that you like. This is one way in which enlightenment comes. That means if you are needed you are going to get enlightened. And if you are not needed, you are knocking at a closed door like God is not hiring today. And if God is not hiring, he simply says, sorry, I don't need an extra enlightened being to live on the surface of the earth today because one extra enlightened being will upset the balance of forces in this Kali Yuga. So enlightenment Is never a random thing. If you imagine in a luciferic way for a second that you could push and twist the arm of God and suddenly say instead of 150,000 enlightened beings, there will be 150,000 and one because I'm special and I deserve it, you are just living in an egocentric illusion where you imagine that you can force things in this universe the enlightenment is not something which can be forced because as I just told you it comes through grace it's a very sobering thought to realize that exactly like in a production plant go to Boeing aircraft industries and the planner the human resources says we are building we are having so many airplanes ordered and we need 252 engineers In that production line not 253 that's money thrown out of the window 252 are required exactly in the same way the divine economy says in the 21st century in Europe there will be this many enlightened beings there are only a limited number of positions and thus those positions cannot be filled up accidentally or by some hey-ho type of effort. The 10 front runners, the runner-ups, are the ones which are taken into the position. One of my teachers, when I was young, taught me this. And he said, the only thing a human being can do is to be eligible, to make yourself good enough so when the need is, You are bumped into that position because the bumping is a grace anyway. And you are asking yourself, what did I do so great to deserve to be where I am? It's grace. Grace acts in very mysterious ways. And this grace, Geranda says, samadhi is attained by great merit. Like, I don't know what you did to become the most proeminent scientist. Uh, most people arguably would say the greatest scientist of the 20th century was Albert Einstein. Many people contradict this and they say Albert Einstein was mediocre as a scientist. But mysteriously, if you ask if the Time magazine or, some, or the Newsweek or something makes a poll, probably Albert Einstein will appear as the most influential scientist, the best known scientist that lived in the 20th century. It's a matter of fame. How, does, how do you become Albert Einstein? You think that's an accident? Only if you believe that life and society are a total randomity. But if you believe that there is a hidden order of things, then in that order it's not a coincidence at all. Remember there were many others, smarter and whatever, who could have taken the place of Albert Einstein and yet he was promoted, there was wind in his sails. Spiritually, scientifically, militarily, economically, socially, artistically, creatively, scientifically, as I said already, all these, there is a merit and there is a limited number of positions. And those positions are taken exactly like in a contest, May the best man win. If you are the best yogi around, and God suddenly decides that one extra enlightened being is needed, then grace will pour on you, and in the middle of one of your yoga practices, or while peeling potatoes in the kitchen, your crown chakra will open, and you are going to reach a state of samadhi. That's the end of it. This is how it happens. So by great merit, be prepared like the Boy Scouts say. Be knock at the door of God. Be with your application in your hand always by that door. Every morning be in line. Stand in line there and say, is there any enlightenment today? And sooner or later you are going to be chosen if you are deserve it. If you don't deserve it, of course somebody up there says go back and practice more. Go back and do more ethics, more yama and yama, more morality, do more this, do more that. It's a very sobering thought and it's completely against all this new age nonsense where everything seems to be some just some rose petals and chirping of birds and all these naive, candid things. Spirituality obeys to some very special laws. So it says it is attained by great merit, by the grace of the guru obtained by intense devotion to him. In India, in Tibet, it has been seen many times that the guru directly participated to this. It happened to some yogis that they got a state of samadhi like independently in their hut, in their bungalow, in their cave. And then they went to the guru and they said, Guruji, what did just happen to me? But... It very often happened that the guru was physically present there and did something. The famous guru, Tibetan guru, Tilopa, who was Indian but the starter of a Tibetan lineage, the Kargyutpas, the redhead lamas, the most yoga oriented Tibetan Buddhist lineage. Tilopa, who was the starter of this lineage, was a very tough and whimsy guru. And after he subjected Naropa, his disciple, to all sorts of almost ridiculous spiritual tests. One day when they were meditating, as they did a thousand times before, like it was nothing unusual, Tilopa just picked up his wooden sandals. I was talking about the wooden sandals as symbols of the divine presence and of the guru last week in the satsang. He took one of those wooden sandals, which he had, puck, and knocked him over the forehead. The guy was sitting near him in front of a fire. And he just took one of his own sandals, BOOM! And in the moment when he hit him, he did something with his kundalini as well. So the mixture of shock, surprise, plus his push of energy created instantaneously a state of samadhi. In this guy who was meditating, he was knocking at the door. He was standing there and he was prepared. He was good enough. And then the guru simply bumped him. It's not because the guru egoistically has power nobody can egoistically give enlightenment to anybody because enlightenment is an infinite thing and it has to come from the infinite consciousness and therefore even when enlightenment is given by a guru it is given from a state of consciousness where the guru knows 101 percent that the divine consciousness says yes so be it and then when the guru has approval from shiva the guru can become an instrument a link in the chain of transmission and sometimes it's beautiful and visible tilopa enlightened naropa ramakrishna paramahamsa enlightened his swami vivekananda swami vivekananda was a bit refractory the first levels were difficult because he he felt a lot of contradiction about Ramakrishna being so devout, so religious, so devotional, which Ramakrishna was practically not at all, because he was a Capricorn, a very rationalistic Capricorn type of person. It doesn't mean that all the Capricorns don't have Bhakti, but this Capricorn called Vivekananda, he definitely didn't have much of it. And Ramakrishna was like Francis of Assisi. Ramakrishna was a mystical madman. And his devo- he was based on a lot of devotion and surrender. And Vivekananda was irritated by it. And at some point, when Ramakrishna was bringing him close, when Ramakrishna identified him and took him as disciple, still he was not really the ideal disciple. He was a funny disciple, contradicting his guru in some ways. And at some point, he <coughs> crossed a line where he simply told to Ramakrishna, Uh, you know you are telling many interesting things and all this yoga thing is really interesting and I'm with you but I also think that sometimes you just cross the line and you are a bit nuts he basically told to his guru I think you are a bit mentally disturbed like you I think you are a bit hysterical beyond a certain line and then Ramakrishna did the thing he just stretched his foot and touched him like this on the thigh they were sitting cross-legged again near each other and Ramakrishna just stretched a leg and bumped him like this and Ramak and Vivekananda entered in Samadhi three days non-stop nobody could take him out of Samadhi for three days 72 hours he was like knocked with a baseball bat and remained in Samadhi and other people got worried they said isn't this guy coming out anymore and Ramakrishna said let him be he asked for it even impolitely he asked for it you know and it's like now he has to taste the taste of it let him be and Ramakrishna kept him, let him be in that state for three days. So, sometimes the enlightenment, the state of samadhi, is coming apparently through the guru. That's not an ego game. It's just that the cosmic consciousness hides behind the guru and does it via the guru. And then you can say, so much power did Ramakrishna have? No. Shiva had that power. Ramakrishna was just the vehicle through which which Shiva playfully gave the enlightenment to Vivekananda, because Vivekananda was needed to the history of India, to the modern history of India, and to the history of the world. So here, Garanda confirms, it's a very subtle and very beautiful statement. He says from the beginning, this is the supreme level, like there is nothing else beyond it. It is attained by great merit, we don't know how Shiva is judging that merit, by the grace of the Guru obtained by intense devotion to him. There was one of the twelve enlightened disciples of Ramakrishna, was even called Swami Ramakrishna Nanda, because when Ramakrishna fell ill with cancer, Everybody else kept doing their practice daily as a homage to Ramakrishna, like that's what our guru would want us to do, to go to the hall and practice, whatever their practice was. But one of them skipped it and became like a nurse. This personal nurse of Swami Ramakrishna, of Ramakrishna himself, he was not a Swami, technically speaking, he became enlightened, and he was called Swami Ramakrishna Ananda. He reached his Ananda, his bliss, via Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was his door to enlightenment, simply because he had been very devoted, even physically, to Ramakrishna. That's a tradition which is Indian. It has not become very popular because when it comes from the heart and from Vishuddha, When it's a pure thing, it's divine and unbelievably beautiful. And when it is mingled with inferior aspects of consciousness, as it can happen often in the modern world, this guru institution can become an ugly, disturbing thing. And that's why modern people are not very happy, because many gurus became slave masters and driving people from Manipura, Swadhisthana, and so on. And there's nothing wrong with Manipura and but they were not integrated in a divine way. And because of this, the guru institution, because people are not humble and they are proud and demonic, and because um, they are not very good examples, even Ramakrishna was considered crazy by a rationalist like Vivekananda. And because of this, this guru institution is very frail. It still exists in India and Tibet to a large extent. And uh, basically, uh, many people do not understand this or they get even irritated by it. In the 10th century, Abhinavagupta, who is arguably considered to be the greatest tantric master to ever have lived in India, and that most probably says to ever have lived in the world because India was the hot the hub of all these tantric things. So Abhinavagupta in the 10th century describes his enlightenment in a place by saying, when in the day when I pleased my guru, I obtained the knowledge that led to salvation. This can sound as a very subjective mafia business, like the guru is somebody whose ass you have to kiss and when the guru says, "Now I'm pleased with you," then you get a green light ahead. Um, if the guru is a real guru, then this does not contain an ego to it. It may appear to the skeptical onlooker who says, "Yeah, right." he did it. this guy kissed his ass, and then he says, "You please me." Of course you pleased me because you rubbed my back for the last twenty years." and you've been my loyal slave for this. Uh, Skeptics and people that are cynical can see all the ugly things, even in the life of Jesus and Buddha and Rumi, and that's why the beauty is in the eyes of the onlooker. From the standpoint of real gurus, a man like Jesus does not say, I'm pleased in you because of an egoistic reason, but because when he meditates, he finds an open channel and he says, now the grace can come. Now the grace can manifest. And that's why in India and Tibet, this has been very important. Very, very few masters in the tradition obtain states of samadhi without a guru. From Tilopa and Naropa to Ramakrishna and Vivekananda, from Yogananda to Shivananda, and you name it, the list can could continue endlessly. Almost nobody obtained a samadhi independently. The only one that is known like this, or two of them in the 20th century, are Ramana Maharishi, the Who Am I guru from Tiruvannamalai, who apparently got enlightened accidentally at the age of 17. As I told you, there is no accident for God. And also, a couple of yogis that had high states of consciousness, such as Ma Ananda Mai and Jiddu Krishnamurti, they did not have explicit teachers in this life. So, it's impossible to say this person had a guru and they owe it to this guru or to that guru. But, exception made of three people in a century, in India at least, we don't have many more others. There are people in India who claim that they became enlightened like this, but we'll see in 200 years if they have passed the test of history, because it appears that many of them have been fakes, and many of them have just said big words without uh, backup. So, to get back to Garanda Samhita, Garanda with simplicity from the beginning, he says, Samadhi is attained by great merit, we don't know why God clicked on you. And you say, why me? And, or by the grace of the guru, which is more often obtained by intense devotion to him. This is a very disturbing thing because it means somebody has to pass a test. You are with a guru. There are so many people who say, no, no, I didn't have any guru. I... It's usually bullshit because it means you did not pass one of the most important tests there is to pass. And that is the test of humbleness and obedience. The Christian monks, when they make the vow to become monks or nuns, they take a triple vow of poverty, of chastity, which means brahmacharya, celibacy, and obedience. Like in Christianity, monks and nuns, if their abbot or bishop, or some superior hierarchically tells them now you can't do this now you have to do this they have to eat humble pie and do it there is no uh, but not Padre Pio who was an Italian saint of the 20th century the bishops told him you cannot appear in public you cannot serve the mass you cannot do confessions anymore that was it people waited by the gate of the monastery while Padre Pio was like a prisoner in a cell in a prison People waited for 20 years. and They were not allowed to see him because the bishop and other people were afraid that this will inflate the ego and the pride of Padre Pio and make him too proud and thus fall into some demonic direction. And of course, there were other concerns of the church as well, more administrative and bleak than the care for the soul of Padre Pio. But that was also there. And that's why in spirituality... Most people have a period where they become very obedient to somebody. And everybody who is demonic and proud doesn't like to be obedient. That is simply an important spiritual test to be passed or failed. And modern people tend to fail it most of the time because of not being obedient. Because of this demonic spirit of freedom, I am me, I am free. Don't tell me what to do. Then, uh, you don't have intense devotion to your guru. You might not obtain the grace from the guru. Maybe you'll get it directly from God. But three people in a hundred years, that's a small percentage, at least in Indian standards. And thus, the chance is much more the other way around. Second. The yogin who has faith in the knowledge received from his guru, faith in the guru, and who believes in himself, will experience his mind more and more awakened day after day and soon attain the wonderful state of samadhi. So, how? The yogin who has faith in the knowledge received from his guru. I am teaching yoga. People are saying, oh, the headstand, it's wonderful. Bhujangasana, it's so good. Udhyana Bandha, it has saved my life. And then the same people five years later, they come and they start giving me lessons. "Uh, Swami, you know that actually I don't think in Agama you guys are you guys. He's not anymore in You guys are doing, he's an outsider already, mentally. I don't think in Agama you guys are doing the Bhujangasana correctly. I think there is a mistake. That person is out, spiritually out. They can physically still be hanging around because it's a sex open community. And there are other benefits in being in such a wild hippie rainbowish community. But actually those people are not, their heart is not here. The yogin who has faith in the knowledge received from his guru. Like there was an Italian girl who sent an email and she said, I was in India, I came to Italy, I have got hepatitis. What to do? And I told her, you do 150 Udhyana Bandhas and if you have power to stand up, you do another 150 Naulis every day until you drop dead. You just do this now, today, because now it's the acute phase. This is the question. Do you have faith in the knowledge that you get from your guru? Like you're asking me a question. My life is fucked up and my relationships are... I never had a happy relationship in my life. And I am telling you. Then start having an open relationship where you'll have to fight with jealousy and possessiveness. And then your answer is, hey, yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Are you my disciple? No, you are not because you don't have faith in my solution. The question is, why the heck do you ask me then? Because you are wasting my time and your time. Geranda says the first condition is to have faith in your practice, in your lineage. Like I told you, now it's time for you to do 150 Udhyana Bandhas. Don't argue with me, don't bargain with me. Do it. That's the way it has been since the beginning of yoga. Yeah. If you don't trust in my method of yoga, the gate is that way. Go. Simply go. You are wasting your time and you are wasting mine. Yeah. As long as you have trust in a teacher, in the teachings. No? He's telling you, I've got a dengue. What to do? Don't take antibiotica. Don't do this. Don't do this, do this, do that. Do you have the confidence or not? So you must have the faith in the knowledge. You must have faith in the guru. Like, oh no, my guru. Uh, somehow he got Udhyana Bandha right from his teachers. And I think he was a great yogi when he was young. But now he became fat and a sexual maniac. And I don't trust him anymore. But Udyanabanda Banda is good because he got it, it doesn't belong to him. That's bullshit, according to Gyaranda. You trust in the knowledge from the guru and you trust in the guru. Because if you just say, oh, uh, the headstand is all right, but it doesn't belong to him anyway because he got it from his teachers, is as long as the hills, the headstand, you know? And I trust in the headstand. But not the fact that today he told me you should do the headstand? No, not today. Next year. Like you trust in the method, the knowledge, but you don't trust in the fact that the guru said today, please do it. Uh, what does he know? He doesn't really understand me. He doesn't understand where I'm sitting right now. This is, there's a difference in between having faith in the, con- in the knowledge like the method is there. I trust the method. Some people don't even trust the method. And some people say, the method is right, but I think today he was a bit angry. And when I went to ask him for a solution, he gave me a bullshit of an answer. I trust in the method, but I believe that the person is disturbed. Yaranda says, trust the method and trust the person. And the third condition is, and who believes in himself. Like you can say, I got the right method from my teacher. My teacher told me that now the iron is hot and I can hammer that iron. And thus, I trust in myself that I can do it. My guru gave me the right knowledge. My guru shot the pistol and said, now go, and now the only thing which is left is confidence in me I've got the information I got the trigger now I can do it so you need also to trust in yourself but not in an egoistic way after surrender after being humble and obedient there remains a beautiful pure confidence which says I can do it and that confidence is involved here. And then he says, if you have those three, if you follow a method, one will experience his mind more and more awakened day after day. That's the rising of the level of consciousness in tantric yoga and soon attains this wonderful state of samadhi. He uses an epithet, he says the superb state of samadhi. Three, free your consciousness from the erroneous identification with the body and the mind and focus on the Supreme Self, Paramatman. This is known as Samadhi, by which one is freed from all the ten usual states of consciousness. There is a theory which is obscure, that there are about ten usual states of consciousness. Confusion, lack of consent, dispersion, concentration, and different states. Some of them more unworthy, and some of them stronger. But nevertheless, they are part of the usual range of states of consciousness. The state of consciousness of a Svadistanistic confused person or the state of consciousness of a scientist very focused on his research or a chess player playing chess very carefully at grandmaster level. Whichever it is, there are different states of consciousness. So in some theory, they said there would be like 10, which is a very significant thing because it means like, corresponding to the ten great cosmic powers, and so on. The number is not accidental ever. This is a numerological connection. And he says, to free your mind from the ten regular states of consciousness and to be able to go beyond, he gives the paradigm of it. He will go more in details, but the paradigm is, free your consciousness from the erroneous identification with the body and the mind. You are not your body, you are not your mind, and focus on the Supreme Self. Who am I? I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. I am Atman. I am the Supreme Self, whatever that Supreme Self will mean. So uh, here the answer of Giranda is a little bit non tantric. Giranda answers in a semi Vedantic way because he says, Free your consciousness from the erroneous identification with the body and the mind. In Tantra, you would say transcend it, not free it. Like it's wrong that you think I'm the body. This is what I am and nothing else. It's wrong if you identify with the concept of your mind alone, but it doesn't mean that you are not your body. Tantra would say a seventh of you or something is your body. Your body is you to a certain extent. Not 100%. Your body is the tip of the iceberg. But you are also your body. You are not only your body. It makes a difference between saying, pay attention that you are not only your body, and to say, you are not your body. Because that leads to a mentality where you can say, my body, I can throw it to the dustbin. It's not good, it's not spiritual, it's useless. That's not true. The body is useful and is the temple of the divine, metaphorically speaking. Therefore, it's not that you are not the body. In tantra, you would attenuate this statement and not make it so black and white, like go away from the identification of the body and the mind. But you are the body. The body is part of what you are. And you are the mind. The mind is part of what you are. It's only that you are not only the body and not only the mind. So if if Geranda would have spoken in a less Vedantic way, then Geranda would have said, uh, not free your consciousness from the erroneous identification, but expand your consciousness to surpass the limited identification with the body and the mind. He would not say, kill it. But pedagogically, it may help that since you so fanatically believe, I'm the body, then for a while, you turn your body to it and you go to compensate, you go wildly in the other direction by saying, I'm not the body. When you will reach enlightenment, you will discover that the truth was somewhere in the middle. The truth was not that you are the body, but the truth is not that you are Not the body. The truth is that the body is just a tiny little tip of an iceberg. And there is much more to you than the body. But the body represents you. For example, when Jesus passed away, he ascended to heaven by dematerializing his body into light in front of people. So his body was okay. He took it with him in God. His body was part of what Jesus was. The body was not left behind to be buried or burned. So understand that here the language of Geranda, there's a small shade, but the language is not quite correct. Otherwise, the method is brilliant. He says, stop identifying with the body, with the mind, focus on the Supreme Self, which is a very abstract concept for those who don't know, and see what it is. And he says, this is Samadhi, by which one is freed from all the ten usual states of consciousness. And he gives the state, the description of the state of samadhi. This you can read it. Any one of you meditating, if you want to read something before you meditate, take this paragraph and read it like self-suggestion. Now, this is how Giranda says, you should think. Four, shloka four. I am Brahman, which means the absolute in Sanskrit, Brahman is a neutral word, neither masculine nor feminine, which means the absolute reality. It's like the, con- the word absolute in Western philosophy, the absolute, that thing which is absolute. Do not mix up the word Brahman with the word Brahma, which in Hinduism is one of the three names of God. Brahma is the creative part of God. It's the, 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 the approaching, the similarity is not random or accidental. But brahma means one thing, and brahman means another thing. And brahmin is the name of one of the four castes. It means a priest of the brahmin caste. So there are three words which are very close. Brahma, brahman, brahmin. They all three mean three different things. So says Geranda, this is your mantra. This is how you should think. This is the thing which you need to see and reach. I am Brahman, the absolute, and nothing else. And Brahman is I. I know no sorrow and pain. I am pure existence, which in Sanskrit is called sat. Pure consciousness, which in Sanskrit is called chit. And pure bliss, ananda. So I am sat, chit, ananda. I am eternally free and always myself. That's a beautiful shloka of meditation. I am Brahman, the absolute and nothing else, and Brahman is I. I know no sorrow and pain. I am pure existence, pure consciousness and pure bliss, Satchitananda. I am eternally free and always myself. That's the meditation of Samadhi as described by Gyaranda. And then, now he has only 18 shlokas left to tell us a few practical things about Samadhi because Geranda Samhita is not a book of philosophy is an encyclopedia of practical yoga and he says in shloka number five first there are four methods to Samadhi in all he is going to describe six but he first starts with four which are his own and then there are two others which he says I'm not practicing those but they exist in yoga and that makes it six there are, of course I never bothered to really make a survey to think if I could come up with three extra ones probably I can so I'm not saying that Garanda says everything which there is that's what he saw this is his opinion there are four methods about which I can speak practically and another two which are around and thus there are about six methods for samadhi there are four methods to samadhi shambhavi shambhavi mudra he means by dhyana so by meditation Brahmari, the method is meditation with Shambhavi Mudra. Brahmari, which is one of the pranayamas, if you remember, is the bumblebee pranayama. by nada. so when you do Shambhavi Mudra, you get enlightened by the mind. It's a meditative thing. When you get enlightened by Brahmari, you get enlightened by nada. It's an internal sound process. Kichari by Rasananda. Whatever Rasananda is, you'll understand in a second. And Yoni Mudra by Laya Siddhi. So he describes four methods in his own system. He says you can get enlightened if you perfect Shambhavi Mudra, if you perfect Brahmari, Pranayama, if you perfect Kechari, Mudra, Kechari as a process, and Yoni Mudra, which is related with what he calls Laya Siddhi. And then in Shloka number six, he adds... The other two ones. The fifth one is by bhakti yoga. See, he didn't make bhakti yoga in this treatise. But he says, yes, there are people who do get enlightened by bhakti yoga. So the fifth method is bhakti yoga. And the sixth one is by Mano Murcha. He described the pranayama, for those of you who didn't listen to that some five weeks ago or so, he described the pranayama which was called murcha pranayama murcha is a funny sanskrit word which means fainting black like swooning so a pranayama by which you push yourself to a level where it's almost like uh, when you are about to drop dead to swoon to faint so he says here and the sixth method is by mano murcha mano means comes from manas and mano murcha means the fainting of the mind to make your mind to black out or to faint and this is related with his methods so the fifth one is not completely alien and he is going to talk about it these are the six methods he says and again i will say be tolerant they are not all the methods existing in india but as far as garanda samhita these are the six methods which he was aware of and they were more than enough for his school for his universe so these are the six methods of raja yoga listen to a description Of each and we are going to go in the next shlokas through a very brief description of the process how does one reach to samadhi by each and every one of those and he takes them in order he calls the first one dhyana yoga samadhi samadhi reached by dhyana by meditation and he consecrates two shlokas to this seven and eight and he says the practice of shambhavi mudra leads to the perception of Atman, visualize Brahman under the form of Bindu and focus the mind in it. There are three levels of Shambhavi Mudra. The beginner level, which we teach in the first level intensive here in Agama, and which is an incredible support to the power of visualization and to the power of mental concentration. For the beginners, Shambhavi Mudra is an excellent project. Develop your visualization, develop your concentration of the mind. And many, many beginners fight for months and even for years with Shambhavi mudra, even at the beginner's level. Then, those of you who heard me lecturing about the mudras in the chapter number three of Garanda Samhita, so that's a bit long time ago, in the last season, or maybe in this season, I don't remember. I think in the beginning of this season. Um, anyway, in one of the previous satsangs. There in the mudra chapter he described 25 mudras and one of them was Shambhavi mudra. And there he did not describe the Shambhavi mudra by simple visualization that we give to the beginners. He described the advanced Shambhavi mudra in which basically one sits with the eyes half open or open and visualizes the light out of which anything, everything is made. It's like a bigger Concentration. After you go from visualizing something and you wonder what is my visualization made of, you can see how this visualization blends and merges with the world. And even if you open your eyes, it persists and it's there. And thus you start understanding the nature of vision and the nature of reality. So the, na- the middle level of Shambhavi Mudra is meditate on reality. Meditate on what the mind is made of. And this corresponds to some other systems of meditation, which in Tibet are called the Maha Mudra system of meditation. And in Kashmiri Shaivism, they are called the Bhairavi Mudra system of meditation. In classical yoga, they are not called Bhairavi or Maha, they are called uh, Shambhavi. And now he comes and tells me when you push this Shambhavi Mudra even further, like you are sitting with the eyes half open like a Buddha and you meditate on the light which creates reality, the nature of reality. He says, the practice of Shambhavi Mudra leads to the perception of Atman. Like, when you go deeper, you ask yourself, who am I? Who has created this universe? What's the nature of creation? Like, what's beyond the mind itself? And he says, visualize Brahman, which is a philosophical name for God. It's a very neutral name for God, as I told you. It's God understood as the absolute. Visualize Brahman under the form of Bindu. What is Bindu? Bindu is a dot like in the middle of the yantra. This dot in the middle here is the Bindu. And Bindu means something like a star. It's something very, very tiny, infinitely small, but which shines dazzlingly. And in that point, in that dot, there is everything. There is the infinite. It's like a collapsed star. It's like a black hole which shines. The space is equal to zero, the time is equal to zero in that black hole, but everything is there, pure spirit and so on. So Bindu, the spirit, the point, is a symbol of the spirit, of Sahasrara, of Shiva. It's a symbol of sperm in the Tantric Yoga because the sperm is Bindu, is the symbol of Shiva and is the one which generates life. And the sperms are like little Bindus full of life the sperm cells, so Bindu, is simply means visualize things as an effulgent, infinitesimal point of light. So the practice of Shambhavi leads to the perception of Atman, visualize Brahman under the form of Bindu and focus the mind in it. He doesn't say where this Bindu should be, usually this Bindu is put in the top of the head, not like in Shambhavi mudra, in the field of Ajna Chakra. But I have encountered yoga schools who recommended, like the Bihar school of yoga and others, that recommend to visualize Bindu even in Ajna Chakra. So it's not a ping pong ball or a 3D object; it's a symbolic thing. It's an effulgence of light. And in Shloka number eight, he develops a beautiful meditation. So you do Shambhavi Mudra. You think that this is a Bindu of light. This bindu of light is brahman, the absolute consciousness, God shining as a star. And 8 continues saying, visualize your atman in the center of the ether of consciousness. He uses a very, very funny name in Sanskrit, used in yoga, which is called kha. K-H-A, it's just a Sanskrit letter, and it's like a syllable. It's just a letter of Sanskrit. And this letter forms the word kechari. Kechari means from the comes from the word to move, uchara kechari, to move through ka. You are moving through what? You are moving through consciousness. When you are in a state of consciousness, any movement is the movement in consciousness. So he says visualize your Atman in the center of the ether of consciousness, like you are in the consciousness of God, Brahman and the eater of consciousness in the Atman. That is the statement of a very important European mystic who said, I am in God and God is in me. Because Jesus himself said, the kingdom of heaven is in your own heart. My first spiritual guru had this Socratic syllogism. He said, if the kingdom of God is in your heart, because that's what Jesus says. I am asking the question, is God present in his own kingdom, or God is absent from the kingdom of God? So if God is the center of the kingdom of God, then it means that God is in my heart. But I am also in God or in the heart of God, because God is much bigger than me. So I am in God, and God is in me. The laws of space and time do not apply. This is a paradox of the mathematics of the infinite. How can it be that I am in God and God is in me? How can God be infinitely great and the Bindu, infinitely small, macroscopic and microscopic at the same time? This we cannot understand with the mind. And it's a beautiful paradox, and this paradox is illustrated by Geranda exactly like this. He says, visualize your Atman in the center of the ether of consciousness, Ka. Ka is sometimes translated by some translators of Geranda Samhita, as the void. It's like a void space. Yes, for lack of better analogy, you can trans- translate Ka as void, as akasha, like ether, but it's a specialized word. So it says visualize your Atman in the center of the ocean of spirit, the the, the ether of consciousness, and the ether of consciousness in the Atman. Seeing the self as ether of consciousness, one has no more limitations. Like I'm everywhere because if I'm that, that is everywhere. Being one with this blissful existence, one becomes established in samadhi. So the first meditation is start from Shambhavi Mudra. See Brahman as a Bindu. Focus the mind upon it, like until you start getting absorbed into it. Visualize your Atman in God and God in your Atman. Microcosm, macrocosm, tumbling over each other. And seeing the self as ether of consciousness, then one has no more limitations. This is how one reaches the infinite say he concludes being one with this blissful existence sat the pure existence one becomes established in samadhi that's the meditation method for him starting with shambhavi mudra and going according to those steps but there are five other methods the next one is nada yoga samadhi through nada this is a method which is a lot practiced in agama in agama we practice the advanced shambhavi mudra more in the Kashmirian and Tibetan ways like Mahamudra and uh, Bhairavi Mudra. Also, the second method with Nada is practiced a lot because of the initiation in Laya Yoga by using internal sounds. He consecrates two shlokas to this as well. He says, Draw the air slowly by Brahmari Pranayama, producing a humming sound like that of a bumblebee and then expel the air very slowly. He connects it with pranayama, and he tells us something which he didn't tell us when the pranayama. It's typical for yoga texts. Either he didn't consider it important there, and he now he says, here it's relevant, or he forgot to say it there, and now he remembers and said, by the way, I should have said this. Or he didn't consider it important there, but here it is important. Or as some people more into conspiracy theories believe. He simply does want to hide the truth, and he splits it in several places. So only when you study the text carefully, you can make the connection. He tells us that this nada will be produced by Brahmari Pranayama, in which you produce a sound like a bumblebee. He didn't say this clearly in Brahmari Pranayama. So if you want to listen to my commentary to when I commented just not long time ago, A month ago or so when I commented the Brahmari pranayama. And you are going to see that there he doesn't explicitate it. So here he says there is a pranayama in which you draw the air slowly producing a humming sound. That humming sound is like the breath of Darth Vader in the Star Wars. It's a breath which is uh, close to snoring. It's a sort of a heavy breath in which it goes like... Or if you don't actually snore, it's just below that. It's a humming sound. It's a hissing, humming, vibrating sound which occurs in your pharynx. So that is relevant because he tells us one of the secrets of Brahmari Pranayama, but not in the chapter about Pranayama elsewhere. He says when you do this Brahmari Pranayama, you are going to energize the area of Ajna Chakra, and you are going to start hearing the internal sounds or nadas so here is a little hint for those of you who are still struggling with your internal sounds some bramari some snoring pranayama done will ampl- activate your ajna chakra and will open you towards the internal sounds so he says do bramari and then expel the air very slowly like the exhale is not relevant. You just exhale very gently so you don't disturb the interiorization, the state of mind. And then he says, listen attentively to the internal sound. He uses the word nada, these internal whistling sounds, the ringing in the ears. Listen attentively to the internal sound nada brought forth by this humming. So. The humming will amplify if you do this snoring breathing. That's an important hint for those of you, a free gift from Geranda, where he says nada is amplified by breathing that way. This leads to samadhi characterized by bliss. He uses the word ananda and the experience I am that. He uses the word soham, the famous word soham in Sanskrit. So he said, if you listen to nada, he doesn't explain much more, but in laya yoga we do. If you listen, and in Kashmiri Shaivism, even more so, if you listen to this nada with the help of Brahmari, but of course if you can hear it already, you don't need Brahmari, it's obsolete already. Then listening to nada, you want, this leads to samadhi, and it's a samadhi characterized by ananda. There is bliss, it's a blissful samadhi which comes from laya yoga you feel happy, you feel flooded with a very divine energy, which makes you fulfilled, happy, blissful, and by the experience of I am that. The laya yoga, the nada, samadhi, is referring, or the the milestones of it are bliss, and I am that, or that I am. The, The next method is described in just one shloka, and... Swami Shivananda loved to say there is one branch of yoga which consists in just one practice. This is called Rasananda Yoga Samadhi. Rasa in Sanskrit means taste. And it's a very large word because it means even taste in art. Like if you dress yourself tastefully or without taste. If you have aesthetical sense or not. So it's a very wide meaning, this word taste. In Sanskrit, even more than in uh, in English, and Rasananda it means the bliss of taste, the taste of bliss. So tasting bliss, and it's because something is happening with the tongue, and it's about soma or amrita. It's about the elixir, the immortality, the the liquid of immortality, the nectar of the gods or the ambrosia, as it is called. And Shloka 11 illustrating it says, turn the tongue upwards and perform the kechari mudra, which was, by the way, described in the chapter 3 about mudras, absorbing the essence or rasa. There is a theory which basically says, I'm going to remind it because I mentioned already, in which they say that if you turn the tongue behind your uvula and stick it behind your nostrils somewhere in the hollow of the head, in the skull hollow, which is behind the nostrils, then your skull is going to start producing some liquids which have psychedelic characteristics. And you basically start by tasting some funny tastes. And those tastes are drugs produced by your own brain, by your own pineal gland, by your own pituitary gland and exuded through the mucous membrane in your skull. And by touching with the tongue there, it's like you close an energy circuit and it's like you press an acupuncture point or a pressure puncture point in your skull, inside your skull. This mudra is very difficult and most people cannot even dream about doing it because their tongue is neither loose enough to go so much in the back nor long enough to reach so far in the back. So it's uh, sometimes some yoga schools are proposing very self-mutilating methods for being able to do this because in normal conditions it's practically unnatural. I'm not going to insist tonight about Kechari Mudra because that's a whole story and very colorful and picturesque in yoga. But I talked about that already. And in our Kundalini Yoga program, uh, the teachers can answer questions and guide you into that should you be interested into that. So his shloka is simple. Turn the tongue upwards and perform this Kechari Mudra. Absorbing the essence, like through your tongue you taste something, like some special saliva, some special secretion. By this, samadhi is achieved, and there is no need for any other spiritual practice or sadhana. You want the practice of one yoga practice done forever. If you are the compulsive person who instead of doing 200 techniques likes to do one, here is a samadhi method of one shloka, kechari mudra, forever for the rest of your life you don't need anything else so there are such methods in yoga as well that concluded the third way of reaching samadhi the fourth which are his primary ones see the four primary ones he calls it laya siddhi yoga samadhi the word laya you remember means dissolution dissolving melting it doesn't only refer to sound it refers to light, it refers to energy. So laya simply means going into some intense, pleasurable, expansive, expansive, not expensive, expansive, like expanding experience in which you feel like you are a bit drunk and you are like, oh, melting. So laya sidi means perfection of laya, pushing this laya dissolving to perfection to maximum. Laya sidi yoga samadhi. Yoga samadhi through the process of laya or dissolving, but it doesn't refer to laya yoga ad literam, because here in Agama when we say laya yoga, we most often refer to auditory laya yoga with a mantra, which is one of our dear methods of meditation taught here in the first level for the time being. And that's what he has to say about it. Two shlokas, 12 Perform Yoni Mudra. Yoni Mudra in Garanda Samhita is a mudra where you lock your eyes, ears and so on. It's a funny symbolic mudra in like you become interiorized in your own head. In Agama that is called Shanmuki Mudra and uh, what we in Agama call Yoni Mudra is according to Shiva Samhita, another yogic text. And it represents a peculiar and powerful practice of Kundalini Yoga. So there's always a matter of names. So don't get confused by the names. In India, the names are slippery often. He says, Perform my Yoni Mudra, his Yoni Mudra, which is this gesture, and become one with Shakti. It's funny because that's exactly what you do in the other Yoni Mudra practiced in the Agama style. So that's very easy. It applies to both of them. Perform Yoni Mudra and become one with Shakti. It's like an identification. And thus unite blissfully. The word which is used is Sringara. And Sringara means sexual union. You the, Unite blissfully. It's like an orgasmic union. Unite blissfully with Shiva as beloved. Because that's all that Shakti wants to do. If you are Shakti, what does Shakti want to do? Go in Sahasrara and unite with Shiva and become pure consciousness. So he says, practice Yoni Mudra, unite with Shakti, do what Shakti does, go up to Sahasrara and unite with Shiva as beloved, and visualize it even like a sexual union. Thus, one transcends to Paramatman, the universal Supreme Self. That's his method with Shakti, with energy. That's what we do with Shakti Chalana, with Yoni Mudra, with others and dissolve, unite, even as a sexual union. There is a Christian myth, mystic called Ruysbroeck, a Dutch uh, Christian mystic, who describes the process of samadhi and of union with God under the form of the alchemical weddings. He simply said, enlightenment is an alchemy between your soul and God. God is the male, and your soul is female. So you just have to make love to God. You have to surrender. You have to give yourself to God as a woman gives herself to her beloved. And he says that's the essence of prayer. Prayer is your soul going to God. That's exactly a way in which Geranda describes here. He says you become like Shakti, your feminine soul, and unite with God like God makes love to you, grace. This is how you get grace. Because it's not your power, you're just surrendering. And thus, one reaches, transcends to Paramatman, to the supreme self of the universe, that is God or Shiva. Thirteen, by this, one becomes full of bliss. So he says this is a blissful experience because it's like a sexual union, it's orgasmic. It's the rising of Kundalini, it's Shakti. And identifies with Brahman. One becomes identified with the absolute, with the one. By realizing I am Brahman, one reaches non-duality, which he calls by the name Advaita, like in Advaita Vedanta. By this, one reaches Advaita and Samadhi. So unite with Shiva, become one with Shakti, unite with Shiva, transcend into Paramatman, become full of bliss, And realize I am Brahman, that's it. That's his meditation with Yoni Mudra, and therefore, this is a Kundalini type of meditation more, and it is applicable very much in the Kundalini Yoga that we do here in Agama. The fifth method which he describes is called Bhakti Yoga Samadhi. That's inevitable in all the mysticism of the world. Bhakti Yoga has been acknowledged as leading especially in a country like India, it will be inevitable to talk about it. And two shlokas for him to explain how he sees bhakti yoga samadhi. Fourteen, contemplate in your own heart the form of your tutelary deity or ishta devata with devotion and full of joy. So for bhakti yoga, you need to have an ishta devata because you cannot love something which is without form and without name. You need to create a buffer, a user-friendly interface between you and God. And that user-friendly interface is that you need to create an image, a symbol of God. That symbol of God is usually adapted to your own psychological characteristics. And it is called ishta devata. Ishta means tutelary, lord. And devata, deity. Ishta devata, your tutelary deity. For example... The cosmic power with whom you are in maximum resonance. That's an Ishta Devata. Or, Swami Shivananda said his Ishta Devata was Krishna. Or, for a Christian monk, his Ishta Devata is Jesus, or occasionally it may be even Virgin Mary. That's what Ishta Devata is it's a symbol, a human symbol, usually an anthropomorphous symbol which for you is a link to God. It's an uplink to God. So contemplate in your heart. In your heart is very ambiguous in India because it means in the center of your being, not in the heart as a physical organ or in the heart chakra. But it can also mean in the area of the heart. That's why it's a word which is ambiguous. It's double entendre. Contemplate in your own heart the form of your tutelary, the the form with form, Ishtadevata with devotion and full of joy. Contemplate, but have devotion, not a dry contemplation, an emotional contemplation with devotion, more than emotional, devotional and full of joy. Fifteen, when tears of joy and thrills or goosebumps arise, He rises above the ten usual states of consciousness and reaches samadhi and also the state of manonmani or transcending the mind. He gives the essence of it so shortly. He says you are going to go through an intense state where there appear tears and goosebumps or trills through the body. Everybody who knows yoga well knows what those goosebumps and thrills represent technically. And here he gives, he shows you that this is what Kashmiri Shaiv calls a state of bhavana. It's done with bhavana. You have to be, bhakti yoga is done with tears, with joy, with goosebumps. If any one of you here in this room loves Jesus or Kali or something divine, Till the point where you have tears and goosebumps then it means you are having a good structure for bhakti yoga because bhakti yoga involves this intensity of devotion of the most elevated of the emotions which is devotion itself so he says when you do this when you he doesn't explain what's happening but of course kundalini rises to sahasrara and stays then he rises above the ten usual states of conscience, like he transcends the usual mind and goes in the divine mind. It was said before uh, also. And reaches samadhi and also the state of manon mani. Un mani means above the mind. Manna un is melted in one word, which becomes manon mani. And it means mind dissolved beyond the mind. <coughs> so he... he Calls your attention on the fact that if you do this bhakti, you reach samadhi and you also transcend the mind. And with this, he has finished the bhakti yoga samadhi. And now he goes into the last one and then the final considerations. Even if we stay 15 minutes more than I planned to today, (coughs) it would be beautiful if we could finish this so I don't have to, in the next satsang, Come and talk about five extra shlokas. So, here it is. He calls it here Raja Yoga Samadhi. But if you remember, he was calling it Laya Siddhi Yoga Samadhi. Now he changed the name. So, he means he considers these two names as equivalent in a way. Let's see why. 16. By causing the mind to swoon. The word used is murcha. So, like you push yourself. uh, 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 And then like a bit like in Agnisara Dauti. It unites with Atman, the mind swooning. It dissolves. It goes like, it's blown. And Samadhi is attained by merging with the Supreme Self or Paramatman. So he describes a method which for some people sounds very insecure. He says you, you push yourself to the point where you faint and there you go in Samadhi. What is the danger? The danger is that you can faint and just black out, and nothing will come out of it. This fainting where you black out creates a fake collateral form of samadhi, which is not completely useless, but it's not the real thing, which great yogis like Swami Sivananda called by its technical name of jada samadhi. Jada with D, jada samadhi, is unconscious samadhi you push yourself into a state of consciousness and instead of becoming super conscious, you just get like knocked with a baseball bat and you faint and you drop. It happened to many yogis. Even Ramakrishna, when he entered in samadhi, sometimes he just dropped dead on the floor. And then the question was, was he conscious or he was blacked out? (coughs) Jada samadhi is that you black out. So this murcha that you faint, is a very slippery word because some people can take it literally and they said I strangulated myself and I held my breath and then ugh, I fainted I was in samadhi yeah but that's jada samadhi that's not what we are talking about so the samadhi involves a continuity of consciousness but it appears like your mind and body is blacking out it's a pretty extreme method in a way And there are many variations to it. So, by causing the mind to swoon, murcha, it unites with Atman, and samadhi is attained by merging with the Supreme Self, Paramatman. If you do it right, you go to God. If you do not do it right, you become unconscious and you black out. And many yogis have blacked out for six months every day, and then one day they hit jackpot and they went into it. So, there is also a trial and error process with this. And now he starts the final part. Just one shloka. He said you make your, you push yourself. Why doesn't he insist? Because there is a murcha pranayama described in the pranayama chapter. Listen to it again. Where he described how to hold your breath till you faint. And he says with that thing, if you push yourself to that limit, exactly there your mind will dissolve. Laya Siddhi, the mind will perfectly dissolve and you are going to go into a state of void where there is no mind, but the awareness is left there. 17, the final seven or eight shlokas. Thus, O Chanda, have I told you about samadhi, which means liberation. He wants to make it clear. This samadhi which is described here is the same thing which in Hinduism and all over India is described by the word moksha or mukti, which means liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation from the karma, which makes you reincarnate again and again. The dream of all the Hindu and Buddhist mystics was to reach to a state of spirituality, energy, awareness, and evolution, where you do not need to reincarnate in the physical world, because the physical world is like a kindergarten, It's useful, beautiful, I'm not against it, but it's the repository of the inferior levels of education in this universe. And thus, it's like primary school or kindergarten. And when you finish it, you go to high school, and that is not necessarily in a physical body. For that, you can exist like a spirit in the astral body, roam through other spheres of existence of this universe. And that's why Indian yoga, Buddhism and many others, Krishna in his Hindu, Bhagavad Gita and so on, they constantly, the the spiritual goal in India and in that environment is called moksha or mukti. Like liberate yourself, liberate from the yoke of compulsory reincarnation. There are people who say yoga is mukti, moksha is yoga. Patanjali says it very clearly. That's why I'm writing this Yoga Sutra, to teach you how to reach to your liberation. That's the purpose of yoga, the number one purpose of yoga. The number one purpose of yoga is liberation. Thus, um, he basically says, now I told you about samadhi, which means liberation. Like in case you did not get it, this samadhi is not without a purpose. This is how liberation is obtained. This is the state of moksha or mukti. Of course, many of you knew it and you took it for granted. But Yeranda speaks from scratch, you know. And he says, this samadhi is moksha. Like, don't get confused. Raja Yoga Samadhi, Unmani. I told you, Mano Unmani. Unmani, transcending the mind. Sahaja Vasta or the natural state are all synonyms and mean becoming one with Atman. So he says, whichever name you use, there are many synonyms describing either Raja Yoga Samadhi, the one which he described before with a man on money, or unmani, money, no mind, going beyond mind, or Sahaja Vasta, that's a terminology which is used by such some yogis that you go in the Sahaja, in the natural state of the mind. It's used in Tibetan Dzogchen as well, Rigpa, the natural state of mind. He says, all these are just synonyms, and they mean becoming one with Atman. Again, the Tibetan Buddhists, following the disciplines of Buddhism, they say there is no Atman, because Atman in Buddhism means ego or personality. They say there is no Atman, but there is a Buddha nature. So it's a game with words. Basically, Geranda says the Buddhists who go to the natural state in Dzogchen, basically they become one with their Atman. Only they don't call it Atman and they even have allergy to that word. So they become one with the void, with the Buddha nature, with the Dharmakaya. They call it, they nickname it something else because there is a rift between Hinduism and Buddhism because they argued philosophically with each other 25 centuries ago. And that's why the Buddhists decided to use a different set of words, even maligning some of the words from Hinduism, like putting them down. But ultimately, the supreme is the supreme and the absolute is the absolute. There is no contradiction there. It's just a formal superficial contradiction. So, he says, all these things, they are synonyms, and they basically mean becoming one with Atman. If you are a yogi, this is how you look upon it reaching oneness with the supreme self that's what it is that's what moksha is and this is how it is attained and then he starts with a few praise verses saying in shloka 18 vishnu is in the water vishnu is in the earth vishnu is on the top of a mountain vishnu is in the midst of fire vishnu pervades the entire universe He basically gives a praise to God under the form of Vishnu. It is said very often that this text, Geranda Samhita, is the only one of the great texts of yoga except Bhagavad Gita, but that's not a text of practical, technical yoga. It's the only text of technical yoga which is Vaishnava. It belongs to the Vaishnava tradition of India. And Geranda is very often uh, rather suspected to be a Vaishnava than a Shaiva. That doesn't make much difference ultimately in the technology but just here is a verse which confirms that I said it in the introductory lecture about Giranda Samhita a year ago or whenever that lecture was given so he just starts now he concludes and he wants to say something he wants to praise God and he says God is in the air in the fire in the water pervading the entire universe 19 all the beings that move or on earth or in the air, all living beings, trees, shrubs, creepers, lianas, grass, waters and mountains, know all of them to be Brahman. See them all in Atman. This is where Geranda turns the leaf and he becomes tantric again. He says the mountains and the waters and the creatures and everything, know them all to be God. No, but that is, then it means they are not Maya. Although sometimes he goes into a Vedantic language, nevertheless, Giranda Samhita is a text of Tantric yoga. So although his Tantric yoga might not be as radical as the Kashmiri Shaivism of Abhinava Gupta, because that one is pure diamond, Giranda is not very strong on metaphysics and philosophy. He is an excellent engineer of yoga and practitioner. And still, he proves here that he did not forget about the tantric vision. A Vedantic person would have seen all the beings in the earth, all living beings, trees, shrubs, creepers, waters and mountains. They are all Maya. Ignore them. Turn your back to them. No. Garanda says, worship them as God. See God in them. All those things know all of them to be Brahman. See them all in Atman, which means see them in your own self. Like Jesus, when he says, you gave me water, you gave me to drink, you healed me, you visited me in prison. And you are going to say, when, Lord, did we do it? We would be happy to have done a favor to Jesus. But alas, we didn't. And he says, when did we do this? And he says, truly, I tell you, that whoever has done this to the least of my brethren like to anybody on the earth, to the most miserable on the earth, has done it to me. So Jesus says, I am in everybody. I see everybody in Atman. Everybody is Atman. Everybody is the Supreme Self. And that's why Geranda here falls into this divine fold. And he says, see the waters and the mountains and the beings and the trees, all of them to be Brahman. They are all Brahman. It's the visible part of Brahman. Is the tip of the iceberg, of the cosmic iceberg. And then he says, see them all in Atman. They are in you. They are in your heart. They are an externalization of your own heart. This is the model of the universe of Leibniz, who said you are an individual soul called a monad, and the world is like a 3D projection around you, and you are in a balloon, like in a spherical cinema hall, And everything you see around is just the bubble of reality around you. You create your reality. What you consider your universe, every human being, is the center of a sphere. And that sphere is your projection of the universe. That's what Geranda says. See them all in Atman. Through the self. That's what Bhagavad Gita says. See things from the standpoint of the self. Everything is equal in the self. And he continues 20. Atman is Chaitanya residing in a body. Chaitanya is another name of Lord Vishnu. And it means God basically or cosmic consciousness. Literally Chaitanya, Chaitanya means consciousness, cosmic consciousness. So he says Atman is Chaitanya residing in a body. Like he insists, maybe you don't believe me. But Atman means I am, your I-ness. And he says, this i which you all take for granted, this is Chaitanya in the body. It's the projection of God in the body. This is the cosmic consciousness existing in your body. Your consciousness is nothing else but a reflection or a manifestation of that cosmic consciousness. So he says, Atman is Chaitanya residing in a body. Without duality, eternal, ultimate. Like, understand truly the nature of your own consciousness. Knowing it as different from the body, let one be free from desires and passions. He's on the verge of Vedanta again. Uh, But this Chaitanya is not your body. Yeah, but the body is part of the puzzle. Chaitanya is not the body. But it doesn't mean that the body is completely not Chaitanya. The body is a piece of the puzzle in the big image. That's why this, in, this statement can be interpreted a bit too radically and then you go Vedantic or you keep it softer and then you stay in the tantric environment where apparently Giranda was moving. So he says knowing it as different from the body, this Chaitanya, I investigate who am I, what's the nature of consciousness, Atma is your, your own self is Chaitanya residing in a body without duality, eternal, ultimate. He gives some inspiring epithets and knowing it as different from the body. We're not talking about your body. We're talking about something else. Let one be free from desires and passions. He means let one be free from inferior desires and passions. You can have the desire to be one with Jesus for all eternity. That desire is perfectly okay. Don't be silly and think that if you have a desire to be one with Shiva, you are an inferior yoga practitioner who did not understand and you are victim to a form of spiritual materialism. And actually, no, it's not true. This is a misunderstanding of the process because the spiritual desire, aspiration, longing, it's perfectly legitimate and it's going to take you to the spiritual realization. So when he says, let one be free from desires and passions, this is the yogic accusation leveled at the rest of the world, that look at the people. People cannot get their heads out of their asses. People are subjected to their desires and passions. Everybody has desires and passions. For their body, for sex, for money, for fame, for this, for that, everybody is drowning in desires and passions. The whole world is a huge soap opera where the characters are blinded by desires and passions. That's what Buddha also said. So there's nothing new. All the spiritualists say that. So when he says, be freed from desires and passions, look at Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was very alive and keen. And he said, oh, how much I would like that you should all experience the state of samadhi. Like, understand what I'm talking about. So Ramakrishna had desires. And he was very passionate But when you say desires and passions, it doesn't mean the desires and passions of Ramakrishna. It means the inferior desires and passions which are keeping you away from God. If you have the desire and passion to be with God forever, 24-7, that's a praiseworthy desire and passion. And it's going to save you. And it's called aspiration. (coughs) It's not, there's no problem with that one. So don't misunderstand, because there are some smart asses in the New Age culture who come up and say, this is not good if you long for God. It's completely nonsense. It contradicts all the traditions of mysticism and yoga, and it's a complete misunderstanding. So when he says, if you know Atman to be more than the body, not only different from the body, but more than the body, then one becomes free from inferior desires and passion. As long as Atman is your body, as long as you think you are your body, you are trying to cater non-stop to the needs of your body. But if you expand and you say I'm not my body, I am an eternal spirit that lives on and on, then how am I going to save my spirit? How am I going to cater to the needs of my spirit? Then I will not have so many inferior desires and passions because I am catering to a much deeper need of my being. 21. This samadhi is beyond all desires and mental concepts. He calls them here sankalpa, is the equivalent of vikalpa. So he says samadhi is beyond that. There is a longing, a love, a devotion, but it's not a desire. And mental concepts, you can't express it in thoughts, that's why nobody in the history of humanity has properly described samadhi, only allusively and obliquely, metaphorically. So this samadhi is beyond all desires and mental concepts. Without attachment to one's own body, son, wife, relatives, friends, or riches, let one become established in samadhi. Here, Geranda goes in a place that I can identify. Like young yogis, The young lions who practice yoga, men or women, are always wild. Like Mai and Mirabai as women and Laleshvari. Like Ramakrishna and Yogananda and other male yogis. He says, this samadhi is worthwhile, it's the top, without attachment to one's own body, son, wife, relatives, friends or riches. Like he simply says, like Buddha. Buddha left his son, left his wife. He was probably blamed by the family. He didn't have friends. He lived in the forest. And he destroyed his body by fasting like crazy and so on. He says, you should not care about anything. He says, become established in samadhi. Even if you die in the process. Even if you lose your son and wife and parents and so on. Even if the whole world described this. Promotes you like an outlaw, like a blames you. You become a pariah to the rest of the world. He says, don't give a rat's ass on anything, even on the health and safety on your body. Put everything into it. He says clearly, without attachment to one's own body, son, wife, relatives, friends, or riches, let one become established in samadhi. Everybody who was one of the great souls of this planet was like this. Either they went into a monastery like Christians or Buddhists or ashrams in India or like Rumi or whatever, any of the big people, men or women in this world, they were like this, no attachment to their body, son, wife, mother, father, parents, relatives, riches, fame, whatever. They were like crazy. They were fanatic. And he says this fanaticism is good. He says without any attachment to anything, let one become established in samadhi. That's the goal. Like Buddha. Buddha, when he died, one of his final advices, he said, monks, ceaselessly search for your liberation, for your enlightenment. Like, you know, that's the message which I'm leaving to you. Ceaselessly search for your enlightenment. If you don't do that, you are getting lost in the labyrinth. Last but one of the shlokas. I love these shlokas which are not technical in Garanda Samhita because that's where you can see the spirit of this. In another yoga text, it says, when obstacles rise in the way of your practice, double the practice. We have people who come to me and say, Swami, I got a flu and I couldn't practice yoga for the last five days. But one of the great yogis, Svatmarama, says when you get a flu and you feel you can't do yoga... Do double than what you planned. If you plan to do three hours of yoga that day, do six. Just for the heck of it. No, like then nothing can stop you from your yoga practice. So this I like very much in the yoga text. I did not read this to teach you Murcha Pranayama because that you can learn in the classes one way or another. But I read this because I love the spirit of Geranda. What kind of people these were how they no because you say yogis yogis well there are yogis and then there are yogis no garanda is one of the rare yogis that's why he is a master and even 250 years later we are quoting him he he remained a legend in yoga because he expresses the right spirit 22 shiva has revealed so here he mentions shiva even the vaishnavas agree that Shiva is the author of yoga. The copyright of yoga stays with Shiva. Shiva is the Adi guru. Even if Vishnu is God, Shiva is the primordial guru. So we don't know, again, if Garanda was worshipper of Vishnu, Shiva, or both, or he couldn't care less about the differences. But here he twists the sentence and says, Shiva has revealed many secret methods for reaching the supreme reality. And fusion with immortality. He calls them supreme reality, para tattva, the supreme tattva, and fusion, he uses the word laya, to merge with the infinite, with the immortal. So he says Shiva has revealed many, it's much more than this, than the Geranda Samhita. I have told you here only an abstract, he uses the Sanskrit word samkshepa, which means like a resume, a brief account leading. To liberation or mukti. So he says, This Giranda Samhita is a drop in the ocean. The science of yoga is even bigger than this, and Shiva has revealed many methods. I'm giving you a brief abstract of the method leading to liberation. And finally, 23, the final shloka, he says, In this way, O Chanda, I have explained to you about the great Samadhi, which is so rare and difficult to attain. It's true. A thousand people start doing yoga, one reaches the state of samadhi. So the state of samadhi is not frequent. It's rare because it requires a lot of commitment and a lot of uh, perseverance in yoga. So even Garanda says, now in the last chapter I talked about samadhi, that's the end of the seventh chapter, samadhi which is so rare and difficult to attain. He agrees, he acknowledges it. Having experienced this, one is never born again in this world. By this world, he uses the word Bhumi Mandala, which means the Mandala of the earth, the sphere of the earth element, which means the physical world. So, not only on earth as a planet, he says if you experience Samadhi, you will never be born again in the physical world, which is the very definition of the first level of liberation or mukti. That's the purpose. He says it very clearly. If you really want to stop being born as a compulsory yoke, then you have to reach samadhi. This is how one stops it, with the state of samadhi. Thus ends the seventh lesson of the Giranda Samhita in the dialogue between Giranda and Chanda called Samadhi Yoga, the last of the seven sadhanas of Gatashta Yoga. And with this, we had the blessing of being able to finish the beautiful text of Giranda Samhita. Sometimes arduous, dry, technical, not very colorful. I tried here to deviate sometimes and give you connections and implications of it by connecting it with Jesus, Buddha, and other great mystical traditions. But um, Giranda Samhita is still one of the great treasures of yoga. And when you read it, Then you immediately see that much of what is practiced today as yoga is not seeming to come from Giranda Samhita. It's not on the same page. So that's why there is yoga which is original. I call it like this because there is an author who wrote a translation of three yoga texts, the Yoga Sutra, the Shiva Samhita, and the Giranda Samhita, and he called it adequately the original yoga. No, like you want to see what yoga was originally, take three texts, for example. There you find the original yoga, not what some epigones have made out of it in the 20th century. Original yoga. Geranda Samhita is such a pearl, such a priceless pearl of wisdom, which comes from a great master. And listening to these lectures, I hope you are getting a feeling of what it is. And you are going to see that to a large extent here in Agama, we are completely aligned with these traditions. We do teach the original yoga. We do teach the authentic yoga. Of course, we are in the 21st century, (coughs) and Giranda never speaks about music meditation. Because they didn't have any way of producing music meditation when they were living in a mud hut, plastered with cow dung somewhere in the rural India and thus music meditation was not a popular or known method then. In the 21st century everybody can have a music device and produce music endlessly and so of course yoga is alive and Agama has evolved from the 18th century yoga of Giranda to things which are appropriate to the 21st century but without going away from the roots like the roots are still there that is important to connect to your roots to connect to the roots of yoga and to do something which is traditional and at the same time updated and rational according to modern science higher education and all the things thereof. with this we have finished with garanda samhita sorry for keeping you longer than usually and of course because i came later and we started later but with this, we have finished our Giranda Samhita Satsangs. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for participating tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.